O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be our strength, by your Holy Spirit lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Good morning. Uh, a little out of breath because I was just hauling hot water up to the baptismal font. We're having a baptism this morning, and I don't want the little child to receive the water of life and the water of death at the same time. Uh, that's actually a really funny thing. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I like reading old catechisms, and Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan and catechist and priest, uh, wrote a catechism for, for, uh, for mothers to give their children while they were, you know, cooking in the kitchen and things like that. And uh, she said, you know, one of, the, one of the questions is, oh, why do we baptize, why do we Anglicans baptize by sprinkling in this country? And, and the, the child's answer is supposed, supposed to be, so that babies don't die <laughs> from the, in this cold country. Anyway, it's a great, great answer. And that's actually, you know, that's actually the answer. It's, uh, it's, there, was, there was kind of a medieval fear of dying, of exposure to water. So people would take baths very sparingly. This was considered to be something that very well might kill you. Um, let's turn uh, to, uh, I want to turn to question 181. And of course, uh, we've already done a lot of this, uh, but I want to kind of go back through it uh, for those of you who are new to the class. Uh, we are on the second section of the catechism, which is uh, the part that covers the Lord's Prayer. Uh, remember, the catechism focuses on three pillars. It's the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. And the reason we do that is so that you learn what Christians believe, how we pray, and how we act um, in the world. Um, let's ask this. What is the third petition? The third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will accomplished in heaven? The heavenly company of angels and perfected believers responds to God in perfect willing obedience and perfect worship. Um, we believe firmly that uh, what goes on in heaven is perfect, yes, uh, without, without problem, that there's a, you know, the, the heavenly company of the angels respond to God in perfect uh, obedience and perfect worship. Um, that is to say that, that, uh, that God is worshipped without any flaw whatsoever. Um, and when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that, uh, that uh, what is true in heaven will be true on earth as well. Now, if you, if you grew up in a lot of kind of traditions where this was not really the case, uh, you just simply believe that eventually the earth will completely implode and, <laughs> and then we'll just all be in heaven and it'll be fine. Um, but, but the teaching of the Lord's Prayer is to teach us to pray uh, that heaven and earth be joined and that the rule of heaven and the, the order of heaven would break out on the earth uh, by the grace of God and by the will of Christ. Where can you find God's will? I find the will of God outlined in the Ten Commandments, learn its fullness from the whole of Scripture, and see it culminate in the law of Christ, which calls for my complete love of God and my neighbor. Um, this is often a great big question. How do I know the will of God? I mean, and, and then there's this sort of doubt that sets in. Well, well, God is unknowable, so how can I really know? Um, but I want to take you back to the fact that God is a God of revelation. He reveals himself to his people. Um, why does he do that? Right, that's one part. 
But it's also that God is a God of love, right? I mean, think about it. Have you ever been in love? I hope I hope some of you some of you need to raise your hand, okay? <laughs> just just let you know. <laughs> but but it's to say, so so what happens when that happens? You find yourself at dinner one night, and you find yourself volunteering more to this other person across the table than you ever would about anything else. Um, you reveal yourself. And ultimately, and this is really the truth of it, when you, when you get married because of all this, you reveal yourself in a way that you probably wouldn't to any, I hope you wouldn't, to anyone else. Uh, because it's such an intimate relationship. And that revelation is full. Um, but that revelation happens because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship of love. So God, who is love, reveals himself to us. And he reveals himself to us first um, in, in the Old Testament uh, in, in a variety of ways. He reveals himself as he is. And I think that's actually something that's actually missing in this answer. But to give the full answer would be very difficult. Um, the God who gives us the commandments on Mount Sinai is also the God who has revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. Um, as the God who is, who I am. Um, so we learn of God in this way. We learn what he would have us do. Um, we, learn it's, we learn the fullness of the will of God from the whole of Scripture. Um, and this is an important thing. Uh, and you might say, well, what does that have to do with, you know, my question, which is, you know, where should I live and how should I, you know, how should I pay my taxes? Because those are coming up. Um, how should I do this? Um, what's God's will for that? Um, and, and I think what we need to do is get back to first things uh, one of the things that I think is really important is that um, it's, it's very difficult to be doing the will of God and be in open rebellion against God um, and what he's told us to do. We see it culminate in the law of Christ. This is a really important point, too, which is that a lot of people will say, well, the law of Christ is given, and that abolishes the law as it was given in the Old Testament. And I think we need to be very careful about that because... Um, one of the things that becomes very clear is that Jesus came not to what? He came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Um, and this is something that is actually a, a live wire right now. There are various pastors saying, well, you know, Jesus came to abolish the whole of the Old Testament law. Christians are not held to it at all. And so some people come in and they say, well, why are you teaching the Ten Commandments? And the answer is that the moral law doesn't pass away. The ritual law will pass away especially in, in our observance as Gentile Christians, which is what we are, um, <laughs> it passes away. Um, we're not beholden to uh, undergo washings before entering worship, right? We're not beholden to those things. But the moral law doesn't pass away. And that's particularly encapsulated in, in the Ten Commandments. Um, and we'll say this more as we go forward into the Ten Commandments section, but what makes the Ten Commandments unique, actually, is that they're given on Mount Sinai audibly before the whole people. That's how they're uh, held in Jewish remembrances, that these are given audibly on Mount Sinai, um, and all the people hear them. And at the end of, the, at the end of that giving, <laughs> they actually go to Moses and say, you have to tell him to top, stop talking to us, because <laughs> we'll die if, if he keeps speaking audibly to us. Um, so there's something very special about these commandments. They're not, they're not something which will pass away. And I should say as well, this is the revelation of God and his love. Um, keep in mind 
that one of the things that makes Israel special as a people is that not only does God dwell with them in the midst of them, but he also gives them a law. Um, and that's, that's actually a, 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 a gift of his love. Um, and you may have experienced this in the past, you know, uh, maybe growing up you saw other kids that you knew in school or something, and, and they had very permissive parents who had no rules, you know. You'd go over to their house and, and you'd say, well, yeah, can, I, can I have some ice cream, please? And they'd say, child, there are no rules in this house. I actually had a, had a friend like this. Um, what I came to recognize, actually, was that these parents were actually not loving parents because they didn't make expectations clear. Um, they didn't lay out any kind of command to their children. And, of course, their children grew up wild and untamed, <laughs> and they haven't done well, right? So it's this, it's this way we need to do this. This is important. Good parents issue commands to their children uh, because they wouldn't, know which, they wouldn't know right from left if you didn't tell them. Um, Continue on, and we see this culminate in the law of Christ. Remember that um, we say this every single Sunday. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. What? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In the old ways, we used to say, on these two commandments hang. I love that. I wish we could go back to it. Hang all the law and the prophets. Um, which is to say that, that, that Jesus, sum, he summarizes the law. Does he do away with it? No, no, he summarizes it. Um, it makes it easier to remember, in a sense. And, of course, this is, not, this is actually not foreign to the people, right? Because they know it. It's Deuteronomy 6. He simply turns them back to Scripture and says, it's all in Deuteronomy 6 if you'd only listen, right? <laughs> and so this is an important, an important thing to keep in mind. And this calls me... Uh, to complete love of God and complete love of my neighbor. Now, how well do we do at having complete love for God and complete love for our neighbor? Yeah, not very well at all, right? And we just say, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's not going well. But um, the Christian's understanding is that what makes our love complete is the grace of Jesus. So we have to say that. That's why we pray. For, his will to, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we know that if it's up to us, can we pull it off? Not at all. I mean, there's this idea afoot that, you know, if, if we were just nicer to each other, this whole world would be amazing. Um, and here's part of the problem is, that doesn't come naturally to us uh, because our nature is busted um, and we need God's grace in order to do this. Um, so the Christian perspective on, on these things is we must have God's grace. We must have his will. Um, and in fact, uh, if we're ever to get it right, we, we can't do that in saying, well, we're going to depart from his will. Um, so God's will is revealed to us. Now, this raises another interesting question, and I want to kind of keep this in mind because the catechism doesn't really deal with this, but I want to for a moment. If you're really seeking out God's will, I want to give you some advice if I can. The first is that um, we must be attentive to the desires that God's given us. Um, all too often we kind of think, well, what I want is, is inconsequential, isn't it? <laughs> like, what does it matter what I want? Uh, but here's the thing. God doesn't want to call us to something that we don't want. Uh, because have, have you experienced that in your own life? 
having to go do something that you hate, and then grumbling the whole time and saying, well, I really hate this. I don't want to do this. It's like, uh, you know, we had, we had a refrigerator go out over the summer and we had a bunch of stuff in there and I just sort of ignored it for a long while. It was in our basement and I just said, oh, I'm going to have to deal with it eventually. And, and I didn't want to, right? I got no joy out of opening that fridge and, and, and doing that job. Um, but I still had to do it, right? Now, can you imagine if that was true of being a priest for me? Like, what kind of church would come of that? Um, it would be terrible. And so thanks be to God, uh, certain gifts of desire I think God put in me that transcended me, in a sense. So be attentive to desires. God puts desires in you so that when he calls you something, you, you want it. Next is be very attentive to your abilities, right? Um, you know... I'd love to play basketball in the NBA, but I know that I know that I know it would be a disaster, right? And as much as I might desire it, my desire does not make up for my inability to play basketball at that level, at, or at any level for that matter. Um, <laughs> so, so you see the point, right? Um, be attentive to your abilities. You know? um, just because you are not able to do what you desire um, does not mean that God's not calling you. Um, sometimes it's just to be, just to say, you know, what, here's what I am able to do. It makes a big difference. Um, and lastly is to be attentive to opportunities as they arise. Um, opportunity is a wild thing. Uh, researchers have shown us that one of the things that makes for very successful people is that they're always on the watch for opportunity. And in fact, they're willing to sacrifice deeply to take advantage of opportunities as they come. Many people, opportunity comes to them, passes them by, and they don't even, know, they don't even realize it. Um, and this has been shown to be true not only in uh, careers, but in uh, relationships and any, any manner of other things, is that uh, most people have had many, many, many opportunities, and they just didn't recognize it when it came. Uh, so that's another thing, is just to be attentive to the opportunities as they come. This, is, this will help you in any way. It'll help you, uh, if you, if you want to get married, it'll help you get married. <laughs> if you want uh, to find a job, it'll help you find a job. Um, if you want to find out what's next for your company or your business, this is an incredible thing. Be attentive to desires, be attentive to your abilities, be attentive to opportunities. Okay, so that's free. <laughs> How is God's will accomplished on earth? God's kingdom comes whenever and wherever God's will is done. As the church aims to hallow God's name and seek first his kingdom, it should lead the way in wholehearted obedience to God in Christ. And I should join and support the church in this. Okay. God's kingdom comes whenever and wherever God's will is done. So we actually believe, not that, not that this kingdom come is, a, is, a new, is like a thing at the end of time that we have to wait around for, but what? It's already happening, bit by bit. Um, this, is a, this is an amazing thing because it means that we Christians are to be on the watch for when God's will is done on earth. Um, it, should, um, con- it should continue to inspire us and amaze us and actually lead us to thirst for uh, the fulfillment of that in full. As the church aims to hallow God's name and seek first his kingdom, this is a reference to the previous part of the Lord's Prayer, um, it should lead the way in wholehearted obedience to God in Christ. This is something I don't think the church has been particularly good about, um, leading the way in terms of seeking God's will. Uh, Many churches today have kind of been, um, how should I put this? 
okay, I'm going to go to meddling. <laughs> They're either uh, willing, willingly giving over the kingdom agenda to a party, to a political party, and no one, they're taking no prisoners in this. I mean, there are some churches where their social agenda is basically the democratic platform, and there are certain churches where their political agenda is Republican politics writ large. Is that leading the way? No, that's basically being, an, that's being the redheaded stepchild of, of politics, essentially. Um, and you'll get beaten around because of it. Um, and, and this is not, this is not uh, the Christian's way of operating in the world. Um, we've got to lead the way. Something to say about this is that um, the church has been established on earth to lead the way um, for God's kingdom. And when we fail to lead in that way, um, disaster follows. Um, because what it creates is it creates a vacuum <laughs> into which other people will fall. Um, and if, if Christians don't lead, where will the church look for leadership? Politicians, <laughs> presidents, uh, whatever it might be. Um, and, it's, and it's a disaster. Um, so we've got to think about and really have a vision for this world and have a vision for uh, what obedience looks like uh, in this world. Um, and we should join and support the church in this. Um, I've often through the years had people say, you know, why is our church involved in this? That seems political. And I'll say, darn right it's political, but we're not, be, we're not falling in line with a, with a party platform. Um, we're actually leading the way in that. Um, so that's an important part of this whole thing, and I want you to see that. Um, what more do you seek in the third petition? In the third petition, I also pray for God to counter the dominion of this world, the flesh, and the devil in my own soul, to thwart the plans of wicked people, and to extend the kingdom of his grace to others through me. Um, we pray for God to counter uh, the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, in the baptismal vows, which you'll see later on today, um, we actually vow uh, to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, and actually, this phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, has appeared in baptismal renunciations for a long, long time. Date back to, the, to the, really the third century, I think. Um, why, this, why we turn our back on the world, the flesh, and the devil? What do we mean by that? Well, the world doesn't mean that we... Uh, I mean, obviously, we're, playing, we're praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're not praying uh, for the total destruction of the world, right? There's a specific kind of world here. Um, this is much more referring to the kind of thing that would be like the world of sports. Did you ever watch the, the wide world of sports? This is kind of an old thing on, on, on TV that you had to have an antenna for. Um, but it was just to say that the, uh, this world of... Um, and, and there's all kinds of this. There, you know, some of you are in the world of academia, right? Some of you are in the world, you know, there's the world of fashion, the world of politics, the world of whatever it might be. Um, and these things are what we need to renounce. Um, when it comes to the flesh, these are the desires of the flesh, the, the inordinate um, sinful desires of the flesh. And when we speak of the devil, we speak of, of the temptation which the enemy throws at us uh, in our own soul. Um, we're to thwart the plans of wicked people. Um, uh, 
you know, this, this is often something that, that you might be able to look and say, you know, I know this is going on in my own life and I haven't done anything about it. Um, you might know of a coworker who's, uh, who's participating in using your resources for something that's nefarious. Um, you might know of some kind of lying going on uh, on a wide scale. Um, accountants almost always find this kind of thing. <laughs> no offense, you're, you're, you're in a tough spot. It's like, I know that so-and-so is, is you know, padding their expense reports. I know that so-and-so is doing X, Y, Z, but you know, I'm just gonna, just gonna let it go. Um, more than that is to, uh, to uh, in, a, in a very real way, um, stand against things when, when things go completely wrong. Uh, and, and this happens on a much wider basis, but remember that it was Christians who stood against slavery in this country. Now, they didn't all, but Christians did. It was, a, it was an ecclesial witness to the, the sanctity of life that led to abolition. Um, most politicians were just happy to let the status quo stand, but it was Christians that pushed for abolition. Um, the same is true in, in, um, in right-to-life issues today. The church is leading the way in right-to-life issues. Um, so we've got to stand in the way of, of those who have uh, wicked plans. And to extend the kingdom of his grace to others through me. Um, one of the most important witnesses to the gospel you can make is to be a person of great grace, uh, to those, especially to those who fail you. Um, I've, I've had a... a, a a leak in my not yet year and a half old roof. <laughs> and I know I've got to, I'm calling the roofer this week to get it fixed. And I know that I could be very ruthless to her, um, but I'm going to have to be gracious to her while still expecting that she'll fix my dang roof. Right. Do you see the point? But I've got to be, I've got, and I'm already plotting in my mind, how can I extend her grace in this and say, I really need you to fix this. I know this has been a rough time for you, but this has got to happen. And how can we work together to see this happen? See what I'm saying? And, and I could just be like, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> but, but I'm going to have to hold back. Okay? Um, the fourth petition. For what personal blessings does the second half of the Lord's Prayer teach you to ask? As a loyal child of God, I pray first for God's honor, kingdom, and will. Then I pray for my own needs of daily bread, pardon for sins, and protection from evil. So get this, get this right in your head. The first part of the Lord's Prayer is entirely focused on God. In fact, the whole of the Lord's Prayer is focused on God. But we turn to our own needs second. Um, and that is to say that in Christian prayer, we all too often, our prayers begin like this. It's like, I could really use your help right now. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. It's like, uh, but... And then maybe we say, oh, yes, yes, and you are holy, and you are mighty, and oh, oh and yes, and all that. But, but Christian prayer always begins by praising God for his greatness and his glory. And then we turn to ourselves. Now, why, why the logic there? What's, what is the logic there? The logic is actually really simple. It's that if you are a person who glorifies the name of God, who howls the name of God, who prays for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then you will rightly receive what it is that he has to give you. But if, on the other hand, you treat God as a cosmic vending machine, you will get angry when he doesn't give you what you put in 25 cents to get, or whatever it is now, $2 to get. Um, 
Do you see the, do you see the difference? Um, when we treat God as, as, a, um, as a functionary of, uh, of heaping blessings upon us, and that's it, and that's the only function, um, we treat him in an, idolat- in, a, in, a, in an idolatrous way. And that is actually what I want to say before we move on, which is that what sets, what sets Christianity and indeed Judaism apart from all the other religions of the ancient world is that there's a sense in which you submit yourself to God's glory and power and honor, and no matter what comes, good or ill, you receive it. Now, in most of the ancient pagan religions, fertility cults, things like that, uh, here, I'll give you another idea. Another idea was this. Um, The god and the goddess have to uh, engage in certain cosmic sexual activity in order to bring fertility to the earth. So if it's going to rain, it's going to be because the god and the goddess are having a happy marriage up in the sky. So how do we get that to happen? Well, we entice them. We, we, uh, you know, we fill the temple with all kinds of, you know, alluring scents, and, and, but we're enticing them to get together. And if we do it right, then we'll have great crops. If we don't do it right, then we won't have good crops. Do you see the problem? It's this, it's this entirely mechanical exchange. Um, but it's not, you know, the glory of Baal, uh, that is that is sovereign here. It's that you know you treat Baal right, and you might you know, everything might go well for you. Um, but that's not Christian prayer, and it certainly isn't what the Lord's prayer is speaking about. Um, so, as a loyal child of God, I love how we say that as a loyal child of God. Um, I don't often think of my children as being loyal or disloyal, um, but maybe I should actually, <laughs> um, because because think about it for a moment. What does that loyalty mean? It means that my kids aren't out going and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, dad, you're great and all, but, uh, but you know, my friend's dad is, is much nicer to me. Well, of course your friend's dad is nicer to you. <laughs> like, what, what do you expect? Uh, but it's simply to say that we, we, uh, we remain steadfast um, and, 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 and loyal to God with our affections and with our worship. That's what it means. And so we pray first for God's honor, kingdom, and will, and then we pray for our own needs, daily bread, pardon for sins, and protection from evil. What is the fourth petition? The fourth petition is, give us this day our bread. What does our daily bread mean? Daily bread includes all that is needed for personal well-being, such as food and clothing, homes and families, work and health, friends and neighbors, and peace and godly governance. Um, you'll remember that the, the whole idea biblically of daily bread actually comes from uh, the wanderings in the wilderness. And you remember the manna coming down upon the people. And remember what happens uh, on uh, Friday afternoon when the manna comes? What do you get? You get a double portion, so you, do, so you don't have to gather the manna on the Sabbath. It's kind of an amazing thing. If you hoard it on a Tuesday for Wednesday, what happens? Yeah, maggots come up and they and it rots and it's really disgusting. And then and then you know you don't get even that daily bread. You know you're 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 out of it. Um, 
But this is an important thing because it teaches, uh, it teaches us to, like those in the wilderness, rely upon God completely. If we pray for daily bread, we'll take daily bread as a gift and not as something we fought for. Um, and in fact, this is a wonderful thing, but um, in Hebrew, the word bread is a really interesting word. Um, it not only means bread, but it also means struggle. The idea is that as you, as you need bread, you struggle against the lump. Um, and, and, and in struggling with it and pushing on it and kneading it, it's the bread of toil. But it's also, when you think about it, it's a miraculous thing, isn't it? I mean, anybody here make bread on a regular basis? I love baking bread. And, and you watch that yeast work and smell. And we know what yeast is, right? We're very good. We have microbiologists now, lucky us. Um, but what do we see? Well, we see how it works, right? But to ancient people, this leaven is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. Um, so this, this, it's, it's a dual identity of both God's blessing and toil. But Jesus is teaching his, his followers to look at it entirely as a gift. That changes the nature of bread, doesn't it? When you think about it that way. Uh, when you daily pray for daily bread, and you don't see it as the result of your struggle and toil, but rather as God's blessing, what does that do? It changes everything. Um, so this is a really important thing. The other thing that I think um, I've actually been gaining from talking to some people at Christ Church lately is that scholars are also saying to us that this concept of daily bread is actually a priestly idea as well. The priests working in the temple received a ration of daily bread so that they didn't have to work while they were doing their priestly work. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is saying, you all are going to pray this prayer and your life of prayer and your life of service in the kingdom, uh, for that, I will make sure that you eat. <laughs> Got it? That's an amazing thing. Um, and in fact, in, monastic, in the monastic world, um, uh, monastics living community pray for daily bread in a way that transcends even the Lord's Prayer because they know that, that it's only by receiving this daily um, sustenance of, of giving that they receive and people giving to them uh, that, that they eat. All right. Why should you pray for daily bread? Oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let's go back a little bit. I want to cover some more of this. It's not just about bread. It's not just about food, but it's also about clothing. It's about our homes and our families and provision for them. It's about work and health, um, our friends and our neighbors. Uh, it's about everything that we need in this world in order to live a peaceable and, 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 uh, and, and, and uh, an upright life. Um, now, as many of you know, sometimes that doesn't work out, right? Well, what do we do with that? Um, what do we do with the fact that there, there are people living with empty pantries? Does God not care for them with daily bread? What do we think about this? Um, and the reality of it is that um, we are, as, Ameri as, as Americans who tend to be on the well-to-do end of things, um, we, we're, we're detached from this reality in a very significant way. But I can tell you that for people who have food insecurity and who don't always have food in their pantries, to pray for daily bread is an act of trusting God. 
Um, and we need to see it in the same light. That even though we might not experience that provision on certain days, we will experience it. And we need to pray for it more regularly. Um, why should you pray for bread daily? God wishes me to trust him every day to supply my needs for that day. Um, and that is absolutely the right way to think about it. Um, listen, three weeks from now is going to have its own cares and worries. Um, right now, all you've got is what's in front of you. Now, I'm a planner. I like to plan things. You know, I like to scheme and I like to think about things for the long haul. And uh, it's been one of the great gifts that God's given that um, for several long periods of my life, I didn't know what I was going to be doing in six months. I didn't know what I was going to be doing in three months or where I'd be or where I'd be living. I had no idea. Um, for in the life of this church, for most of our existence, we had no idea where we would be meeting in three months. Um, sometimes we had no idea where we're going to be meeting next Sunday. <laughs> um, and those were particularly scary. But, but it's to say that God provided. Um, and we learned that he supplies our needs. Um, even when it's not at the time that we want, he supplies our needs. Why does God give you daily bread? God gives me daily bread because he is a good and loving father, and I should thank him for it morning, noon, and night. Um, and this is really laying out and giving you a bit of anticipation of how we as Anglicans pray. We give thanks morning, noon, and night. And it's not just when we sit down to meals. It's more than that. Um, this morning and evening prayer form this way of giving uh, these hours to God. Um, so I think this is a really important, important point. I want to say just a little bit more about food and the, the role that food plays, because I've been reading a great book on uh, a theology of eating, and I want to share some uh, neat insights from that. Uh, we're doing a Brazos Fellows retreat on food next week, and uh, lots of good things are coming to the fore. Um, think about how we perceive the world. What's, a, what's the prime way that we perceive the world? Which sense? Yeah, our eyes, right? Our eyes in our head are the prime way with which we see the world. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but maybe, maybe a friend goes and gets a haircut, and they come back, and you're like, whoa, what happened to you? It's because, in a way, your reality was shifted by perceiving them in a new light, or they got new glasses, or something like that. Um, the way that we perceive the world through sight, though, is a rather detached way when you consider it, isn't it? I'm not touching anybody with my eyes. Um, I simply see. I take it in. Um, but to touch is a different sensation, right? Um, I can look at this carpet and see that it's green. And, and it's actually a nice shade of green. But but to feel it with your hand, which some of you have probably not done. But you'll experience that carpet in a new way, right? So as what, what before was green is now, ooh, it's soft. Do you see the point? When I see food, what's my relationship with it? 
it looks pretty. Maybe it doesn't look pretty. Uh, you know that burgers on billboards are kind of done by an artist with clay of some kind or some kind of modeling material um, because it makes it look more appetizing because they know that we primarily perceive the world through sight. And, and sight matters when we're looking at food. I mean, the, the secret to a very successful restaurant is presentation, presentation, presentation. The food has to be also tasty. But when we take into ourselves food, what's happening? Ah. Rather than being able to be remote from it, we actually join in this communion with it. Um, when we eat uh, vegetables, I mean, that vegetable is going to die inside of us. Think about that. I mean, for you vegetarians, this, is, this might be a helpful thing. The, the vegetable is going to die inside you. In a sense, makes it makes it less palatable than meat. Uh, but but you know, when you eat meat, an animal died. Um, you're taking into you another living creature in God's creation for your sustenance. Um, we participate in a hierarchy of all kinds of things at which we are absolutely and uncontestedly at the top. Um, and God has given it in this way. So when we speak about daily bread, this is what's going on. It's more than just our sight. You see, we're not asking to just see bread. We're asking to have bread that we can eat. And this is actually a daunting thing when you consider it. Um, consider for a moment that um, nothing will send you into more panic and fear than... Uh, than seeing cleared off shelves at a grocery store. Any of you ever anticipated a hurricane or something like that? And you go to the grocery store, there's no more milk, there's no more bread. What are we going to do? Um, it, it's, it's, it's scary at a fundamental level because you realize that this, this fundamental daily act that you do all the time, you'll lose. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Um, but we learn that, that God is gracious and good, and he wants us to have this. He wants us to take into ourselves on a daily basis part of his creation for our own sustenance. Um, so there it is. Um, I would also tell you this, that in my own life, we've learned the value of um, testing the limits of this, I should say. <laughs> uh, you know, how are we going to have a baby when we can't, you know, do this or do that. And then it always, you know, Frank McCourt, you ever read Angela's Ashes? Well, there's, this, there's this Irish proverb that says, with every baby, God provides a loaf of bread, which is a very typically Irish thing to say. Um, but, but it's true, we found. We found in our own lives that, that when we're open to God's blessings, and it's not just children, it's all kinds of things. When we're open to where God's leading and we're open to his providence, we receive it. But when we're closed off to it, and we sort of grip everything we have with a tight fist, what happens? We'll look at these hands. Can anything get in these hands? Nope. It's these hands that God can put things into. Okay. So I'll leave you with that. All right. Just let's do a little bit on the fifth petition, and then we'll close. What is the fifth petition? The fifth petition is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What are trespasses? A trespass is a thought, word, or deed contrary to God's holy character and law, missing the mark of his will and expectations. 
Um, the word in Greek for sin, hamartano, means like an archer to miss the target. That's what the word means. It's you're firing at something and you miss it. Um, a trespass is a thought, word, or deed contrary to God's holy character and law. It misses the mark of his will and expectations. Um, when we sin, uh, we fall short. Um, we miss that mark. Um, and sometimes it's because we did something amiss, and sometimes it's because we didn't do anything at all. Um, these two uh, go together. Have you trespassed against God's law? Yes, together with all mankind, I am sin daily against God's law in thought, word, and deed, and love neither him nor my neighbor as I should. Um, we are joined with, uh, we've, got, we've got good partners in crime, don't we? A whole world of, of sin. Um, and sometimes we're, we're given to this idea that says, man, I am so much better than all the other people in my life. I mean, at least I'm not, and, and this is what we human beings will do. We'll say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> um, you know, I've actually heard people say things like this in public. You know, at least I'm not as bad as Pol Pot. At least he's not as bad as this, you know. And, and the answer that we ought to give as Christians is, oh, no, 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 no. I am the worst of sinners. Now, is that objectively true? I just ask you this. What does it matter? What does it matter? Um, because what we recognize when we say with Paul, I am the worst of sinners, what do we learn? Oh, just, just say this to you. I've at times had to hear some confessions that were like being pelted to death with marshmallows. And I'm like, I have to sort of sit there and say, okay, okay, okay. I have to recognize that this particular person is very overwrought by the things that she's just now told me. And I have to have compassion and I have to remember this. Because if, you know, if that were me, I would be like, I did really well this month. <laughs> but, but she's distraught by it. Do you see what's going on? It's, it's, just, like, it's just like what happens when... Um, when, when people will have their first baby and they'll say to me and I'll say, oh, how you guys doing? You know, and I'll say, is it, is it been, has it been tough on you? And they'll say, tough? Why do you think it would be tough to have one baby? I'll say, believe me, it's tough. I know it's tough to have one baby. And they'll say, but you've got six. Like, what's going on there? I said, and I, I'll just say, it's always hard. Always so whether your sins are small or whether they're great by the reckoning of whatever measurement it might be, it's always distressing. Um, and sometimes we get so used to certain sins that we, we, we don't think of it in that way. But, but we must be trained to always think that we're the worst of sinners. So this is an important thing. Um, and we share in this with, with everyone in the world. I sin daily against God's law in thought, word, and deed, and love neither him nor my neighbor as I should. I've also had the experience of meeting with people through the years who say, well, I just can't think of anything really awful that I've done. I say, okay, well, let's go through the Ten Commandments. And it starts to fall apart at that point. Sometimes people will say, 
yeah, but you know, I really do. I love my neighbor. I'm not, you know, I'm not mad at anybody. You know, I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. You know, I don't do this. I don't do that. Say, well, what haven't you done? And then it's just like verbal vomit. It's like, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. And I'm such a failure. It's like, okay, now we're going somewhere. This is good. <laughs> but, but it's just to say that, that, uh, that we all share in this. There's nobody out there that doesn't share in this, in this deep, sinful state. What is God's forgiveness? God's forgiveness is his merciful removal of the guilt of sin that results from our disobedience. God's forgiveness is his merciful, merciful removal of the guilt of sin. All right. What does it mean to remove the guilt of sin? Oh. Now, you should know this. There are two parts to original sin. One part is our fallenness. Does God remove that? Nope. We still have desires that, that overrun us. We have desires that, that are all over the map. Um, we have disordered desires. And so God doesn't remove that. Um, now, he will remove that uh, in the fullness of redemption. But he removes the guilt. Um, and what this means is that, uh, that grace means vindication. Does this mean that we're no longer guilty of the sin that we've committed? No, we did it. What it means is that the legal verdict which has been passed is not guilty. And you and I both know that there are people who have been declared not guilty in this world who are guilty as sin, but it was because of a merciful judge or because there wasn't enough evidence against them. But what the Gospels are speaking about when they speak about this, this forgiveness of sins is they're saying, whatever's happened, that debt has been dropped. Dropped. Um, and if, have you ever had a debt forgiven? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. Yeah, good. You remember. The rest of you don't remember this. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's to say that very often um, we, we rack up debts. Have you ever forgiven a debt? Okay, we should try that because it's an amazing thing. Um, when, when you call somebody who owes you $2,000 or something like that from several years ago and they're unable to pay it and it's just driven you crazy and you don't know what to do and you, you call them about it and you talk to them about it and it just, and it feels, you feel the strain on the relationship to call them up and say, I've decided I no longer have any interest in the debt that you owe me. I'm not going to ask for it. Um, it's forgiven. Scales fall off. Because what it means is that that, uh, that relationship has been restored. Now, is it a full restoration? Well, how can it be? Um, but it means that for your part, you've done what you can. Um, and that's, that is the, at the essence of forgiveness is that God mercifully removes that guilt. Um, I don't know if you saw recently, and I'm going to close here. This is one of my favorite illustrations of, of, uh, of forgiveness. But... Um, uh, I believe it was the John Oliver show. Uh, they, they bought up medical debt in the state of Texas. Do you remember this? It's an amazing thing. They, they bought it for pennies on the dollar. They bought, they bought, I mean, it was an obscene amount of debt. I think it was approaching a billion dollars worth of debt that they bought for a few million dollars. <laughs> and, and, and they just started calling people and saying, 
oh, by the way, we want to let you know, we've forgiven your debt. And they just started calling. And they, they just pushed, he pushed a button and forgave all this debt. Um, can you imagine that? Like a TV show calls you and says, we bought your debt, we forgave it. What that would mean to you if you've been sitting under this pile of medical debt for a long, long time? Um, it, it shows that you didn't deserve it, did you? No way you deserved it. You didn't deserve it. You deserve to pay the debt. But it's been dropped. Um, you still incurred it. You still did it. But it's been just dropped. It's not, it's not a, and this is what happens in forgiveness. Is that our trespasses against God are no longer live issues in our relationship with him. They've been put away. They've been set aside. So when we pray, and we're going to get to the other half of this next week, but when we pray, forgive us, our, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, what we're doing is we're appealing to a loving Father to drop the debt that, that, he, that, that, we, that we have to him. And what does he do? I mean, I think the answer is quite simple. Oh, that's already been paid. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and gone to pay, and then you realize, it, because the waiter tells you, oh, that's already been paid? Well, who did it? I don't, I don't know. This happens on occasion. Um, you receive a great blessing, um, and, and it's something that, uh, that we, we daily return to God in thanksgiving for. Um, it means that, uh, that we have been relieved of that burden. Um, one more analogy that I want to give, and this comes from Steve Waters, who gave me this one. <laughs> it's, it's how in other cultures they speak of forgiveness in Bible translations. Um, it's like it's, it, the, the analogy is catching a fish on the hook, and then you let go. You let the fish off the hook. Um, that's forgiveness. You could eat the fish and take it. You could take the, home, the fish home for dinner and eat it, but you let it off the hook. Um, and God lets us off the hook um, because he wants us to be free. And so long as there is a relationship of debtor, as we have this relationship of debtors to God, um, we will never be free. We'll always be slaves. And here's the thing. Why did God... Why did God move to set his people held in captivity in Egypt free? Was it for egalitarian notions of human freedom? No. The reason that, the reason that God gives Moses for the freedom, for these coming freedom of the people is so that they can worship on that mountain. The reason that you and I have been set free from sin and given forgiveness of sin is not just so that we can sort of be happy, well-adjusted people who don't have debts hanging over us. What is it? It, it restores and indeed it makes better than it ever was our relationship of, as worshipers. When we worship in freedom from a debt, it, everything, is, everything works. Um, and that's the reason that I would say, if you came here this morning with, with grievous unforgiveness in your heart, or you don't really believe that you sought God's forgiveness, 
Um, that's the reason that we make, that we kneel and confess our sins before coming to the Eucharist, is because we're, we're desirous of having that relationship restored for the purposes of being restored to worship, um, so that we can worship God rightly. All right, that's all for this week. Uh, we'll pick up next week with As We Forgive Those Who Trespass Against Us. Um, all right, thank you. <laughs>